Hello, and welcome to another episode of Roots and Hoots, a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Since 2020, we have been gathering, laughing, learning hard truths, and sharing in community conversations with Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. Each episode, we learn something new, and we're excited to be sharing this journey with you. Roots and Hoots is about connecting with and celebrating Indigenous people's contributions to their fields of study, work, and cultures. We also speak with allies who share how they are furthering the work of reconciliation in Canada. To learn more about the Legacy of Hope Foundation and the work that we do, please visit legacyofhope.ca. In this episode of Roots and Hoots, host Gordon Spence sits down with Kelly Saxberg. Kelly is a film producer, director, editor, and cinematographer who has worked on well over 100 films. Kelly is of French, Finnish, and European ancestry and lives in Thunder Bay. Her work in documentaries and filmmaking started at a young age, and she is passionate about sharing her knowledge and skills with storytellers and filmmakers through her production company, Shiba Films. Most recently, Kelly teamed up with journalist and proud Inuinak Navalik Tologanik on a documentary film project called A Tale of Two Kalunat. Filmmaking runs in the family, and there are always projects in the works. Enjoy learning about some of the important Indigenous stories Kelly has helped bring to light and the lessons learned along the way. Welcome Thank to you. this podcast of uh, Indigenous Roots and Hoots. Uh, my guest today is Kelly Saxberg from uh, Thunder Bay. And I'm your host, Gordon Spence from the Legacy Hope Foundation. Maybe we can start, Kelly, if you can just talk a little bit about your background, where you're from, and, uh, yeah. and you know, your family background, your cultural affiliation. And that. Okay. Well, um, my family uh, really originally came from Thunder Bay, where I live now, and uh, my mom and uh, my dad. My dad's the uh, son of Finnish immigrants and uh, French um going back right to the founding of Montreal um Jean Cadier and um and that francophone heritage like many was lost and uh I'm really proud to have regained it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my mom's side it's um Scottish Irish and Welsh right yeah do you have any brothers and sisters yeah that? I've got um actually my brother um um works with Murray Sinclair at uh, Cochrane Saxburg in uh, Winnipeg. He's a lawyer. Right. Okay. Um, for the one of the most important indigenous led firms yep. in uh, in Winnipeg. Right. And okay. uh, my other brother lives in Calgary and my sister is a retired school teacher in uh, in southern Manitoba. Yes. Also a small town. So You live in Thunder Bay now? I live uh, in Thunder Bay and uh, my husband is uh, Franco-Manitoban. Um, oh, yes. and, um, and he has some, uh, Métis roots heritage from, uh, Northern Manitoba, from, uh, Tutsaid, Spence Lake, actually, in oh, fact, right. <laughs> a Métis yeah. nation is, yes. is where his mother was uh, living Lake. for a long time. <laughs> um, and, uh, she's now in, uh, in Dauphin, but she's a really remarkable 91 year old, still dancing kind of gal. Yeah. And, uh, she wrote a book about a barren lands trapper called Gus Dow, who was uh, really remarkable. There's a bust of him in the Yellowknife um, in the museum there. Okay. But yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah. I know all about trapping because right. I helped with that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have children? <laughs> and we have uh, three children, Gabrielle, uh, Adrien, and uh, Emily, and, um, and they're also 
francophones, really proud to say. And, uh, and they, uh, my daughter lives here in Ottawa. Yeah. My son is a, a filmmaker in uh, Toronto and my other son is a filmmaker in Thunder Bay and a music composer and Jeez, yeah. works on all of my, our projects together. You must have a lot to talk about when you get together. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we have to say no business. Right. <laughs> Let's yeah. just talk yeah. family. Family stuff. <laughs> you worked on over 100 films as a director, editor, cinematographer and film producer. Can you uh, tell us a bit about your journey into the film industry and what inspired you to create and tell stories through film? Okay, well, um, my dad was a radio DJ and I grew up going to the TV station and then he became a teacher of broadcasting at Tech Valk High School in Winnipeg and I got to go and learn everything. Got a job in the TV station and then I got a job with the National Film Board of Canada training as a uh, an, an assistant editor and the first project I got to work on was uh, Daughters of the Country a four hour drama series about Métis women wow. it was groundbreaking yeah. and I learned a lot on that project that was really quite amazing and Where then I was this? in Winnipeg in Winnipeg yeah it was all filmed in, in Winnipeg the first uh, show was called Equay and it's about contact Yeah, and uh, much of it was in um, the Ojibwe language mm-hmm. And uh, then the next one was um, uh, Mistress Madeline, which was about a, a Métis woman who uh, was, you know, the, the wife of the factor who then gets thrown over for when the uh, European wife shows up. Oh, right. It's really remarkable. Yeah. And that's in the period of the, really the battles of the, of the uh, fur trade. Is this like you're talking about uh, a, where uh, the French men had... Indian yeah. wives, uh, and back home they had their yeah. first wife. That's exactly the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, and um, and those women. Um, but it was during the time of, uh, uh, you know, the period uh, shortly before, like Louis Riel and and right. you know, battling yeah. for Métis rights and uh, in Manitoba. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then then the second or the third show was about women in the twenties and Métis and how they were dispossessed, right. you know, post um, the Red River Rebellion and the 1885 war and um, Batoche and all of that. And then people were pushed out off their land. Um, and basically it's about a family and it, the film stars Tantu Cardinal. It's like one of her first uh, films. Yeah, And be. she was, uh, uh, you know, basically they're living in the on the roadsides, by the trains and all of that. That's the fate of so many Métis. Was this like, this was... These were dramatized. Um, this the, happened after, like, the Real Rebellion? This oh, is this is were... in the 1920s. Yeah, it's just that legacy of, like, after 1880, after 1870 and 1885, you know, like, when they hung Louis Riel, but they gradually, all the Métis they were really pushed off the land and or the land was taken. They went farther north. That's why there's so many Métis right. communities in that in the far they're north of Manitoba and into Saskatchewan. Yeah, um, Interlake, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so so that was really great for me as like a young 20-year-old, like learning all that history. And uh, and then, um, then the final show that I worked on too was... Um, 
can't remember name what it was called, but it was like modern day. But of course, in modern day was like 1985. <laughs> and it was about a Métis community and the police uh, watching these children, um, you know, go on the ice and drown. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. it was really about police uh, brutality and, and, and insensitivity and, and yeah. repression and everything of a Métis community. Yeah. So it was a groundbreaking, and you know, the film board never used to, well, doesn't do any drama now, but it did do drama. It was like, I think that series was shown all over the world. And the producer, I was so lucky to be able to like learn my my filmmaking skills on that project. You know, one of the first uh, films that I made myself as a filmmaker was about home birth. And uh, we were interviewing midwives and and women who had had home births. Mm -hmm. And one of the women I I interviewed um, was, her name is Elsie Spence. (laughs) And uh, from where? From Spence Lake, from uh, Tootsaid. And uh, Tootsaid done on Lake Manitoba. Yeah, she was the neighbor of my mother-in-law Alex Harpel and um so we went over they lived right next street she lived next door in her little cabin and uh, I asked her about home birth and she she was um Métis her mom was um uh Soto and her dad was French and her mom died and then she was put into like the residential school and orphanage um and which she later on like ran away yeah. when she was young. And then she was working for a farmer and she met uh, um, uh, another young Cree man. They started having kids. And she just told the stories of her having these babies and with no one and having to get up and clean up herself and go uh, <laughs> and go back to work for these farmers that she was kind of enslaved to. And right. she's an example of running away. Yeah. Again. And, um, uh, but anyway, she survived. She raised all these children and, uh, and my mother-in-law, uh, wrote a book about her called, um, it was, uh, uh, my legacy or my children. Okay. And, uh, it's published by a Métis publishing Pemmican. Pemmican yeah. Publishing? Pemmican. Yes, yes. Yeah. It, it's been published by Pemmican. Yeah. It's a really remarkable story, and it was like to get to meet her and record her stories, yeah. which I actually have on video. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever want to publish them, <laughs> they're all yours. We might be interested. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so it's funny how you, you know, in your travels of your life, like the connections that you make. Right. And, and uh, one other thing that really marked me in my childhood that I wanted to talk about is when I was 17, I went on a six-week canoe trip. And we started in on Wollaston Lake in Saskatchewan, and we went all the way through, and we had our food drop off in uh, Brochet and Lac Brochet. And, that's uh, in Manitoba. That's the home of Thompson Highway. Yes. And I've just read, I, I showed you one book, and I just read his other last book, uh, the trickster, um, it's the Massey lectures. And, um, I feel like really specially connected to it because I went there as a 17 year old and went through those canoes, those by via canoe yeah. <laughs> and met people in, we went through five different communities and, 
that really made all the difference for me learning. Because yeah. a young girl from the South, I didn't know what life was on a, especially on a remote reserve. The only way you could get there was by boat Good or who? plane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Snow Goose Gallery located at 83 Spark Street has been specializing in the sale of First Nations and Inuit art since 1963. The Snow Goose Gallery is a family-owned business, and as owner Ian Wright will tell you, the store prides itself on purchasing directly from artists and on their knowledgeable representation of First Peoples art from across Canada. The Snow Goose Gallery, located at 83 Spark Street, has been specializing in the sale of First Nations and Inuit art since 1963. The Snow Goose Gallery is a family-owned business, and as owner Ian Wright will tell you, the store prides itself on purchasing directly from artists and on their knowledgeable representation of First Peoples art from across Canada. Here you will find Cape Dorset prints, carved Inuit sculptures, First Nations wood and stone carvings, and more. The Snow Goose Gallery is located right in the heart of downtown at the Spark Street Mall. It is a great place to shop for gifts made by Indigenous artists and to consider when designing your home or office space. Enjoy the serenity and beauty of the Snow Goose Gallery next time you're in the nation's capital. The Snow Goose Gallery is a proud sponsor of the Roots and Hoots podcast. And for more information on their collection, store hours, and contact information, please visit snowgoose.ca. That's S-N-O-W-G-O-O-S-E dot C-A. So anyway, so that's how, I mean, you know, uh, I, I started working at the film board. And then because my husband got a job at, Lake, at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, there wasn't a film industry there. Yeah. So then I had to start making my own films, which I've been doing. Right. And it's uh, and right? it's really, also it's storytelling, history. right? That's, and also that's history. That's that's what I love. And people's, people who, who haven't, their stories haven't been told. Yeah, recently you were the cinematographer yeah, and co-producer of the documentary Journey to Our Homeland. Which marks the travels of That's elders right. from yeah. Nibinamic First Nation mm-hmm. and youth mm-hmm. as a paddled a historic canoe route. Can you tell us a bit about this experience, what it was like doing this, uh, you know, being up north in, uh, in northern Ontario mm-hmm. and going through that experience? Well, this project was started by Tommy Yellowhead. Um, the late Tommy Yellowhead, tragically, he, we lost him last year. Um, but it was literally a dream that came to him, um, that he wanted to uh, take uh, youth and retravel those ancient roots that his ancestors had taken for thousands of years. And where he was born and um, and Stephen, uh, his other um, elder that came with him, um, you know, like they had this plan, they wanted to go, and he said, "We got to document this, right?" And also, he wanted to. He saw it as a project that would be continuing. Uh, Nibinamic is part of Matawa First Nations. There's, um, I think, there's at least eight different communities that have grouped together to sort of give strength to each other when, when trying right. to deal with government and mining yes. inter- mining interests, because that's the whole so Ring of Fire area. So anyway, so he came and talked to me, and I said, yeah, this is, I can do it with, the, and my son, Adrian, um, he did all the sound, and then he became the, the director and mentor for another uh, young uh, indigenous um, uh, emerging filmmaker, Derek O'Keyes, and he is from Fort Hope, another Matawa uh, community, and we were able to uh, 
So just going on that canoe trip, um, it was short. It was supposed to be only four days, but it ended up being six days, and we didn't quite get where we were going, but it was so remarkable of an experience, and I learned so much. And plus, um, you know, I brought my six-week canoe trip uh, paddle with me. And, uh, and because those roots hadn't been used for so many years, all of the... Um, it took us... We didn't get as far as we wanted to go because of all the blowdown. Uh, when we were going through, uh, um, like all the... There had been storms and uh, the trees had all blown down over the portages. So we, had, so we weren't able... Like the first portage, okay. The, the young guys, they had their chainsaws. They had to clean it all up. But then we got to uh, another where a portage would have saved us like seven uh, rapids. Um, and there's just, we couldn't, we couldn't clean them. So we literally, they, the, they had to line the canoes. That's like going along the shoreline and with, with ropes dragging the canoes and uh you know all those challenges that you that people had you know thousands of years ago like to 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 do that um so it was really a remarkable journey we filmed all of it and of course a small portion gets put into the film but um journey to our homeland is a an incredible uh film we just got into another uh film festival it got awards and um i have to say the thing that we we won we were nominated for three awards at yorkton but one for best research which was 100% Tommy Yellowhead. And um, they flew up uh, for a youth workshop. They flew Derek up to Nibinomic, and he presented the, um, the statue, the Golden Chief Award, to, uh, to the, um, first of all, to Stephen, the other elder, and then to the family. So it was really emotional and, and uh, wonderful. And we're working with Matawa First Nations. We, now we're doing, uh, we just finished a, I have an um, animation team mm-hmm. made up of uh, three Ojibwe <laughs> um, uh, animators oh, and, uh, and another uh, young fellow, um, person of color, and uh, they're just so remarkable, and they did an incredible uh, uh, little um, uh, educational film called What is Blasto? Blastomycosis is is uh, something that's happening because of uh, climate change and that, but it's a fungal infection that uh, Constance Lake First Nation, 130 people had it and were in the hospital and people died. So we were educating people about the dangers of that. Is that from drinking, drinking water? No, or? no, no. It's from, it's a fungal that, fungus that grows microscopic around wood piles in dirt and people don't know exactly where. Yeah. So, um, Really, the thing to know is that what are the symptoms and then make sure that you tell the doctor to uh, test for blastomyces. Right. Um, because it's something you could breathe it in and then two weeks later you get sick and it looks just sounds just like uh, you've got pneumonia or something. Right. And then um, actually, uh, then it's, it's really dangerous. But if they do the test... Um, there, then they would give the proper antifungal medication, and there's ninety percent um, recovery rate. Right, ninety five percent. So it's something that's in the air. It's then. natural. It's yeah. natural. But with climate change, and you know, it's like a mushroom. Yeah. You know, you if it has the right conditions, you know, it's nice and hot, then a bit of rain, and then it's you know, in the fall or summer, then they pop up. 
that's what happens with this. So you don't know if you, and it affects lots of dogs, but it's in communities. Um, it's not like, you know, something that just happens to uh, First Nations communities, mm-hmm. but definitely we are the hotspot in uh, like Kenora and um, Northwestern Ontario. We're the hotspot in the world right. for this. So anyway, so that's kind of off topic, but I'll send you the link to that. Uh, we're finishing it in uh, in the Ojibwe language and in English and in French. So that's journey to our homeland. That's uh, that's the what, what's called blast. That's called what is blasto. But uh, journey to our homeland. Yeah, um, I'll give you the links if people want to watch that. Um, okay. That's the canoe trip, and then on on top of the canoe trip, they had also interviewed over twenty elders. That where they had flown them into the into those uh, you know those first um, areas where people were born and where they had their camps and there's like burial sites, yeah. and um, and they had recorded all those. So not only did we make that film, we also um, uh, uh, Kevin Wabas he translated all of those because they were all recorded in Ojibwe or Ojikri mm-hmm. and. Um, and so we have all of those, and they're going to be all posted. Wow. Yeah, lots of great work. What do you know about, uh, like, you hear about this ring of fire? Uh, oh. You touched on it. What I is mean, it about? Just uh, It's, sort of, it's about untold riches to some mining companies and the government. They've, all, you know, there's been so many, uh, uh, you know, the legacy of mining is horrific. I made a film called Guardians of Eternity, Um um, with um, my colleague France Benoit in Yellowknife, and that's about the giant mine and the legacy. Right. Um, but it's told from the point of view of the Dene communities that live right there on either side of that mining and the 350,000 tons of arsenic that is buried there that needs to be frozen for eternity to protect uh, the lake and the land Oh, and it, it's enough arsenic to just kill us all like a hundred times over. Wow. And uh, so so mining, um, so we know because of that story and a, and a big project about called Toxic Legacies, um, the legacies of all these mines in the north are horrific. And Matawa First Nations, they are, many of their First Nations communities are right where this ring of fire where they're finding this, um, those kind of special heavy metals and things that are like so valuable right Iron now. Iron ore and stuff like that. Not no Copper. no no. It's the new modern Wolves. ones. Mo- oh. New modern ones. Um, Titanium. Yeah. Um, oops, sorry. But uh, I don't know by. <laughs> I, I, I talk with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think they're called rare earths. Really, and oh. you know they use you use them in cell phones and and lithium batteries and things like that. Okay, and so it's tons of money, and communities in the past have been uh, not consulted properly, and when they stood up for consultation, like I know that the community of Big Trout Lake, they basically pre- said, "You guys aren't consulting with us. We're going to prevent you from coming into the area. You don't have permission." 
and uh, you know like De Beers diamonds or something. Anyway, they went to court and the they they were arrested and the entire band council was thrown in jail. I heard about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's a long legacy, and that's I think that's kind of why Matawa First Nations came together to like have more power together. But of mm-hmm. course, you know, there's every strategy to divide communities yeah. and all these promises. Yeah, we're going to give you jobs. We're going to give you a road. We're going to... Yeah. And there's a filmmaker in uh, in Thunder Bay. He just made a film. And I can't remember his, uh, the name of the film, but it's Tony McGuire. And it's all about building these roads to communities and what it's going to mean. Yeah. Um, and that's a feature-length documentary that yeah. we showed at our film festival, Vox Popular. The uh, I always find that roads lead to you know when they build a road to a community, a remote community, yeah. it's usually the beginning of the downfall of the culture and the language, yeah. especially the language. Yeah, uh, that that happens so so often. So many communities, like Grassy Narrows. Yes. Yeah. And uh, a lot of northern communities and. Uh, not so much, I guess, in Ontario because uh, I think a lot of those communities in Northern Ontario are still pretty much isolated. Yeah, uh, because but it's this, coming soon. Yes, yes. They're putting, they're going to put train tracks in and all that. And you'd think that you know having roads and train tracks and and all of that kind of stuff would bring elect, cheap electrical and right. and you know cheaper food. food and 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 easy contact, but it doesn't usually work that way. Right. It's it's uh, you know all geared to you know, getting these riches off of the land that, that they don't care about. Yeah. So, yeah. You also do a lot of mentorship in your work as a filmmaker. Um, you did some, uh, you currently are doing some, some, uh, some workshops. I was, um, actually I got a little gig to go and do some, uh, documentaries about social economy organizations in Nunavut. And um, I, I, there was very little money, so what I wanted to do is find uh, Nunavut filmmakers. Um, and so I, I heard they were doing that Stories from the Land um, workshop up in Nikalawit. So I went up there and I got to meet um, uh, Alethea Arnica uh, <laughs> Beryl, who's uh, currently doing a Netflix series. But if you haven't seen any of her films, um, Angry Inuk. I and, saw that. Uh, yeah, uh, Tunit about the um, uh, uh, tattoos, Inuit tattoos. Right. Uh, anyway, um, so I met her, but I also met Navalik Tolaganik, and um, anyway, so there that story comes a bit later. But I was so impressed at this whole idea of having a five day intensive workshop where you bring in people and and mentors they teach people and then they make a film in a day and then edit it and then show the film and um so i applied for our community so that people from remote northern communities in ontario um not exclusively indigenous but it ends up being many many indigenous participants of course yeah um and uh we've just finished our sixth workshop this year Mm-hmm. And we had like really great participants made two films and, um, and, uh, it's such a learning experience. And, and in the past, our other, uh, docs North that we've done, um, films have, uh, ended up at imaginative 
and uh, gone on to be on like on APTN or are the the um, the participants were able to then go to um, uh, National Screen Institute and do a one year or like a four month bigger project. Right. And that was like their specific indigenous focused um, yeah. training. So, so yeah, like I moved to Thunder Bay, there wasn't a film community. So we started a co-op and we started training people and giving people tools and access to equipment. Right. And that has just, that has paid off all those people that from like 21 years ago when we started, we're still all working together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, so like, just this last one, we had um, Derek O'Keys, who I mentioned, um, we got a training from uh, Matawa, from their training program for a year and a half. He learned how to edit, shoot. Uh, he became, he's a composer um, and he, he did the Journey to Our Homeland project and all of these elders interviews. And and uh, and now he's working with us again. Um, so he's indigenous. He's indigenous from Fort Hope, and now his brother is working with us, and he is a really gifted animator. So we've applied for support for that. Right. So yeah, um, yeah I have a team. Yeah. Um, that I have um, uh, now four uh, indigenous um, Ojibwe um, emerging artists uh, working working with us on our various projects. Yeah. You find that a lot of uh, there are more and more indigenous people getting into uh, uh, film documentaries. Oh, of course, yeah. yes. What one um, my one of my first like projects that I was like a, my first fiction film that I directed and produced is called Seeking Bamodswin, Um and it was written by Michelle DeRosier, and that was her first film. Um, as a writer and she acted in it and then uh, later on she did we did another uh, a documentary on the side called um, Sharing to Buewen which was uh, more of a documentary the other one Seeking Bamad's one was a fiction film we tried to have as many uh, indigenous um, uh, it's all the actors and everything except for a couple um, are all indigenous and they were non-actors at the time um, um, but we had a, like a workshop and, uh, and we won a ton of awards for that film and it was distributed and it's about, um, teenage, uh, suicide and depression. And, uh, it, all the, the story written by Michelle was based on all the research that, um, psychiatric social workers, indigenous, um, social workers, doctors, psychiatrists, and, and that, um, their research of like what was needed um, because this psychiatrist who was dealing with this huge flood and epidemic of suicide and depression among young indigenous people in, in our region in Thunder Bay said there was no resources for the family, no videos or anything that reflected indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I mean, he wanted to do like a whole series on everything, on all the things. But the the researchers that that team of consultants, uh, indigenous led social workers, doctors, and that they said you need to focus on suicide and depression, and these and the people that are most affected are young women, actually, and uh, so and from different situations, you know, a young woman who's from a remote reserve, a young woman who is. Um, 
not really indigenous appearing. Maybe she's got like, uh, you know, non-indigenous heritage in, in the city um, and a, a, somebody from a reserve next door and then a, a young man also. And so those four young people were the stars of that show. And, you know, when people came in to like audition and read the script, people came from out of town and they said, this is us. This is our life. This is us. What's the name of the series? Well, it was um, two films. So Seeking Bamadzwin, which means seeking the, the good life and the good way, right. the good path. Mm-hmm. And then Sharing to Boywin, which was a documentary. And we interviewed uh, Nell, I, I can't remember. She's the first indigenous woman psychiatrist in Canada. Oh. She also was 60 Scoop. She was raised in Thunder Bay by... Uh, Dutch uh, immigrants, and um, and then as an adult, she found out her heritage was Northern Manitoba, mm-hmm. and um, and she was able to connect with uh, communities in Southern Ontario. And uh, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head, but it's you can easily find that film uh, sharing to Boywin. Yeah, and uh, but we also like interviewed Indigenous doctors, social workers just to give cultural competence to all those non-Indigenous healthcare, mental healthcare workers. Right. So yeah. that they, and we touched upon basic things like residential schools, the legacy of the 60s scoop and yeah. all of that. And we did that like, I don't know, like over 15 years ago. Well, and that's been, you know, shown and sold and yeah. APTN wouldn't play it though. <laughs> those guys. <laughs> Anyway, what's the name of your uh, company? My company is Sheba Films. Originally, it was Shabanduan Films, which is a Cree word, I think. Sheba is easy to remember. She, and that's exactly why I reduced it down to Sheba. People would follow it Sheba. And it's like Sheba Films. Yeah, Sheba Films. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, filmmaking and documentary making it sounds very exciting. And, uh, and, uh, I, which is probably why a lot of younger people are becoming involved more in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but there are challenges. And uh, I recently worked on a, a documentary with uh, with Martha and uh, an Irish film company. Um, money it seems to be a oh, big yeah. factor. You're always chasing money, and uh, yeah. that'd be one of the main major challenges of getting into film. Well, this is this is why we created a co-op. And we made actually many films. Um, as equipment became cheaper and cheaper, you know, now everybody can make a film on their cell phone. Um, as my, that became cheaper. But in the old days, <laughs> like where I'm from, uh, I had to like uh, try to get access to equipment, you know, at, the, at like film co-ops. So that's what we did. We created that and we created workshops. Um, and money is, yeah, if you want to, uh, what I learned was that, you know, and what we pass on in all our workshops is, um, you know, work with each other and support each other. And, um, so when you're doing your initial films and that, uh, you, we did it all with labor swaps, you know, you've got a camera, I've got a, a lighting, and then, um, I'll work on your film for free and you work on my film for free. And, and, you know, 20 years ago, it you needed to have access to um, editing equipment that was very, very costly. Yeah. Today, young people can edit on their phone. 
they can edit on there. So if you're, it's really good to, um, uh, of course, uh, try to get these bigger budgets so that you can have like professionals helping you and right, all that. Yeah. But um, I say just start off by just doing it with whatever equipment and camera you have and your passion. And now there is so many resources. And now there's an Indigenous screen office. And let's hope that the government doesn't take away their funding, that they'll continue to be funded to be, enable people to have their the ability to have that mentorship and, and uh, some resources, right? So that's... Um, but uh, yeah, money is a, a big thing. But I have to say that, um, well, first of all, I have to thank my husband who has a day job at Lakehead University because wouldn't have been able to make a lot of films without that and without traveling support, and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. so I turned him into a filmmaker yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a professor and, uh, and, and because he travels for all his research and work, we're able to like do films around the world. But most of the time we always start just ourselves, just for free. Uh, yeah. um, you know, doing it, finding, getting the story. Where do you get the ideas from? Like, uh, well, do they just come to you or, no, or no. something you hear about or what? Well, uh, uh, you know, the first, the first documentary I made, like as a director was about home birth and that's cause I had had a baby and it was horrible. I didn't want to be in the hospital. And, um, and bizarrely my doctor, these women that shared a thing in Toronto, they said, oh, do you want a home birth or do you want to? I'm like, what? That's allowed? <laughs> a midwife? And so I, that's what I was passionately interested in. And a, and a friend of mine, she was the same thing. She, I said, okay, we'll, we got a little grant um, from the city of Winnipeg. And we said, okay, whoever gets pregnant first, we're going to follow them. <laughs> she did. <laughs> and we did that. <laughs> So those are the kind of things. And then Ron, he's a, you know, he's a researcher. He, my husband, he did a, his uh, thesis on uh, West Indians in Costa Rica. So, um, and then, uh, and, and history. And I have a master's in history and I was looking at women and power structures in Cuba and Nicaragua. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so when you're doing research and doing history, um, there is every story. And then I'm, when we moved to Thunder Bay, Ron miraculously got a job of all places where all my family's from, Thunder Bay. Um, there were women uh, doing an oral history project about women who, during the Second World War, built airplanes in Thunder Bay. And the chief aeronautical engineer was a woman named Elsie McGill. She was the first woman in Canada to get her uh, engineering degree. And then she became the first woman to get her master's in aeronautical science and the first woman to design an airplane. And she had polio and she was disabled. And she was got a job to design a trainer plane in Thunder Bay at their factory there, Canada Car. And then the war happened, Second World War. So they built like 1,400 Hawker Hurricanes for the British during the Battle of Britain and then uh, uh, Hell Divers for the Americans. And this woman was the head of the engineering and, and all the men went off to the war. So half of the workers building those airplanes, riveting and everything were women. Wow. And my grandmother and my grandfather both worked there. Really? <laughs> I, in Thunder Bay? In Thunder Bay at the yeah. Canada car. And so I started on that project 
And then, you know, like every time you meet, especially an elder, a senior citizen, Mm -hmm. you're going to hear the most incredible stories that no one has ever heard about. And that's how I get my stories is like listening to the storytellers. Yeah. The Snow Goose Gallery, located at 83 Spark Street, has been specializing in the sale of First Nations and Inuit art since 1963. The Snow Goose Gallery is a family-owned business, and as owner Ian Wright will tell you, the store prides itself on purchasing directly from artists and on their knowledgeable representation of First Peoples art from across Canada. The Snow Goose Gallery, located at 83 Spark Street, has been specializing in the sale of First Nations and Inuit art since 1963. The Snow Goose Gallery is a family-owned business, and as owner Ian Wright will tell you, the store prides itself on purchasing directly from artists and on their knowledgeable representation of First Peoples art from across Canada. Here you will find Cape Dorset prints, carved Inuit sculptures, First Nations wood and stone carvings, and more. The Snow Goose Gallery is located right in the heart of downtown at the Spark Street Mall. It is a great place to shop for gifts made by Indigenous artists and to consider when designing your home or office space. Enjoy the serenity and beauty of the Snow Goose Gallery next time you're in the nation's capital. The Snow Goose Gallery is a proud sponsor of the Roots and Hoots podcast. And for more information on their collection, store hours, and contact information, please visit snowgoose.ca. That's S-N-O-W-G-O-O-S-E dot C-A. I guess this kind of will kind of close us off with, uh, with this one other statement and from you. And I want to get your your reaction your your feelings about uh you know there's been a lot of talk about reconciliation in canada and uh, what can we do to make this country better uh and everybody has a different you know view and they're not they're not wrong they're, you know because it's such a reconciliation is such a big word and it means you know different things to different people you know because people come from different walks of life in canada what what are your feelings on this, and uh, what comes to mind? How do you feel about you know the, when people talk about reconciliation? Well, you know, I I started working. I mentioned seeking Bamadzo when that was twenty years ago, and I learned about residential schools and like impact right from people that I met, and then other films, the same thing, the same thing. I kept learning new things, um, and then recently we we started this project of these. Uh, this one woman writer who and uh, Sheila Burnford and Susan Ross, who was the niece of Robert Flaherty, who made Nanook of the North. And um, we came into possession of all her sketches. And she had she and Susan spent 10 years going to remote communities in northern Ontario. Then they got to go to the Arctic. And uh, anyways, we, we came up with the film idea to bring all these sketches back to um we just wanted to do that bring these incredible sketches of people that were made in 1970 1971 um back uh to pond inlet and i needed to work with an inuk filmmaker and that was led me to all these things that have happened in my life led me to navalik tolaganik who is a residential school survivor and we went there and you know i didn't Pond Inlet is where? Pond Inlet is in uh, northern Baffin Island in Nunavut. Right. And uh, it's one of the most northerly uh, communities. And um, yeah, Navalik, she finally said she'd come with me. And we went up there and we we took all these sketches. We made them into a beautiful book. And, you know, and then after that experience, like it was so special for the community. 
and bringing that back that was reconciliation to me mm-hmm. and the and the family that gave us all that material and the film footage and everything they they wanted to come but they're unable to uh, the daughter and the son of uh, uh, of the um the families of Susan Ross and Sheila Burnford so we went up there with Navalik and and that was remarkable then Navalik invited me to accompany her to the Pope uh, apology in Iqaluit. And um, so, and that was like a month later. So I did that with her and we're making this film called Silent Cries. Um, and it was such a emotional and <laughs> incredible learning experience going with these Inuit elders because they wanted to hear the Pope's apology on their land. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people from the West, they went down to Edmonton. But they wanted to go on their land. And the Pope had a special meeting um, in the elementary school gym. And all these um, elders, we went and picked up people on the plane, on the charter that day uh, in um, Rankin Inlet. Then we get there and we all go on elementary school buses all these elders <laughs> going on the school bus to meet the pope in the gym of the elementary school to hear his apology and it was so moving i mean i can't even think about it without yeah. tearing up anyways um it made me think um yeah all of that is part of healing and reconciliation and it's done in partnership you know, with the non-Indigenous, like myself and Indigenous people, and all Canadians have to take part of that. Um, And one one thing I saw saw was that that art, bringing those sketches back, those sketches were of children who were back for the summer, having been all taken away from their families and in these residential schools. Mm -hmm. And all the family, they were there at that short time in the in the summer where they got to be with their parents. And then those parents would be absolutely bereft of, uh, uh, you know, those children in the fall, they all went away. Right. And, you know, like I'm 61 and that's my generation. I, you know, I think I, like a lot of people thought, oh, that's old. That's a long time ago. That's, you know, like that sort of ancient history of what happened. No, it's my years. generation. Exactly. It, and, and, and uh, you know, it was happening when I had my kids. Right. Your, your parents' even, kids. Your parents', my parents kids. Yeah. My, you know, I cannot imagine being taken from my parents. I can't imagine my children being taken from me. Right. And so, like, going through these films and trying to help people tell that story, like Navalik, to tell her story. Yeah. You know, she was at three years old, and they took her for a year to um, to a tuberculosis hospital. Right. Then she got back just in time for there to take her away again to residential school. Yeah. For twelve years. Yeah. And they cleaned out all of those communities of the yeah. children, and um, and they built a Nuvik, mm-hmm. like, you know, for almost for that purpose. Well, the residential schools created industries right across Canada. Oh, yeah. You know? the, the amount of money, like the number of people that 
worked in those schools, right, worked yeah. in the, and the in, and they they called them the, the Indian hospitals mm-hmm. for the huge epidemics of tuberculosis. And you know, like one of the stories that we 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 met this um, woman today's um, I can't remember what her last name is, but she her story was told to the Pope, um, and uh, her daughter was taken when she was four years old to Chesterfield Inlet. Then then she was taken to um, then she got sick, and went to a TB sanatorium or Indian hospital in uh, Quebec. And, uh, and there she died and they don't know to this day where she is buried. They finally, they they had a funeral for like several children and there's records of the funeral, but they didn't bother saying where they buried them. And there's like some three graves that they did locate, um, maybe at the sanatorium, maybe at the, where they held the funeral or where, or somewhere else yeah. and in those uh unmarked graves are her several children the bodies of several children yeah that's uh that's something that's not really talked about uh the uh that the, there was hundreds and hundreds of kids that were sent to sanatoriums uh for, for you know for, for tb and other yeah. illnesses and they were, and they died in these hospitals, and they're buried somewhere in the town where the hospital was. Uh, basically, unmarked graves, yeah. or maybe a name, but uh, uh, yeah. and a lot of families were not even told, not even informed exactly. till the years later. And uh, yeah, I know that you know some 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 are actually still looking for their yeah. their family members who were buried down south. So yeah. it's uh, oh, I started reading that about you know, for the film with Navalik, I wanted to tell that story looking for photos and that. And there were horrific articles about, you know, like all these little children and babies and stuff. And, and the nurses in that would like take them home. Um, like it was like a, a, a pet or something, you yeah. know, like, like there's just, and, and the whole thing of not informing the families is just beyond, uh, it's so inhumane, yeah. so uh, horrific. And I'm, you know, I don't doubt that people were caregivers and the people that were working there and in these hospitals with these all these sick children and adults and everything. Um, but it's just no one else would be treated like that mm-hmm. in Canada. I just don't think people would uh, uh, would put up with it. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's mind-blowing <laughs> really anyway so i have a passion and i've got a great partner uh to work with i've learned so much from her and uh right. i just love her and we're going to talk to her eventually we're, we're going, going to have talk her, to her we're going to have her on our podcast <laughs> yep. so, so we'll have to arrange a time yeah uh i want to thank you uh kelly saxberg from uh, uh for being on our show uh roots and hoots uh, uh kelly you're from you're with uh, sheba films uh, you're the director, producer, and uh, editor, and the great storyteller. Uh, thank you on behalf of Legacy Hope Foundation and Roots and Hoots for coming on our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Merci, Kwana. <laughs> Roots and Hoots is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. 
For this episode's show notes, please visit the podcast episode description. And for more information about the work we do at the Legacy of Hope Foundation, please visit legacyofhope.ca.